This is an ABC podcast. There's this beautiful closing scene in Italian quantum physicist Carlo Rovelli's bestseller, The Order of Time, where he reflects on Beethoven's Missa Solemnis. The song of the violin, he writes, is pure beauty, pure desperation, pure joy. We are suspended, holding our breath, feeling mysteriously that this must be the source of meaning, that this is the source of time. It's very Carlo Rovelli, this intellectual free spirit with radical roots and a passion for poetry and literature, art and science, the whole rich smorgasbord. Carlo was recently named one of Foreign Policy magazine's 100 Most Influential Global Thinkers. He works in Italy, France, Canada, trying to understand the deep mystery of how gravity works at the quantum level. He writes popular opinionated columns in Italian newspapers and popular science books that have really struck a chord with fans worldwide, amongst them seven brief lessons on physics. And his two new books are There Are Places in the World Where Rules Are Less Important Than Kindness. And out this month is Helgoland. Carlo joins you and I on Science Friction from Canada this week. I'm Natasha Mitchell. And we started out by reflecting on the way in which this pandemic, this tiny virus with a will to spread is challenging the hubris of our species. But then we got bigger, way bigger. Thank you for having me. I love how you describe we humans as being this species of little creatures living on a marginal planet off a peripheral star in one of billions of galaxies in the cosmos in, a, in an essay that you've written about the astronomer Copernicus and his his revolutionary challenge to the assumption that Earth and so us were, were centre of the universe. But I, somehow I, it seems to me that, that we live with this pre-Copernican prejudice, that certainly at the level of the ego at least. We definitely do. Yeah, as a species, we still cast ourselves at the centre of the universe. And I wonder if you think if, if we didn't do that... If, if we sensed that we were just an arbitrary player on an arbitrary planet surrounded by 100 million galaxies, do you think we would possess a different ego? Probably, yes. The fact that we are obviously irrelevant on the larger scale of the universe, it doesn't mean that we have no meaning. It doesn't mean that we care about is meaningless. We are, we are certainly nothing, right? Our sun is one out of 100 billion stars in our galaxy, which is nothing. And our galaxy, it's... a one out of probably a billion, billion galaxies in, in the world. So yeah. we're just incredibly <laughs> teeny and peripherically. It kills me that in, someone in has May. actually counted that. <laughs> You're right. And, uh, you know, in the last decades, it was realized that it was many more than what we thought the decade ago. So, <laughs> so we're even smaller than we thought we were. Yeah. <laughs> even right. more inconsequential. <laughs> That's right. Some people are scared by that, but that's, it's not the centrality of us that make what we care about important for us. Things are important for us just because what we are, right? I love the woman I love, not because she's the central universe, because she's the woman I love. <laughs> Is that, uh, and, and, and so it's for, for us. We are important for ourselves. I find it, uh, if I, it gives me serenity. It doesn't, doesn't give me anguish. It's sort of relaxing to know that uh, we do our best we share what we can, we love what we can, and that's and we appreciate the beauty of this life. Yes, 
Your initial university studies were in the classics, I think, and then and then on to physics, and then on to a PhD, and then into the world of of quantum theory and quantum gravity. But I, I'm curious to know what that classical training brought to your physicist self from early on, because all those that have read you, who have read you, know that you have a great passion for poetry and literature, and you know physics is is part of all that for you. Yeah, science is a it's it's a complex enterprise that requires the collaboration of different people and different kind of minds. And uh, I have appreciated uh, scientists which are extremely technical or which have an extremely analytical mind. They just uh, go into details and uh, uh, you know split the the, the arguments uh, over and over again to find the little track. I'm not particularly good in, good in doing calculations or in uh, in going into details. Um, but I think that science also needs uh, people who look the things from from a larger perspective and uh, and and see where are the the true problems and where are the good directions. Uh, and for that, a education which is not strictly scientific, I think it's a, it's, it's extraordinarily important. If you look back into um, into the great scientists of the past, uh, many of them uh, had an extraordinarily wide uh, culture. So I think the extra, the over-specialization of modern education does not help help uh, fundamental science to, to go ahead, not just in physics, it's also in biology and medicine and uh, in, in other sciences. I believe that I don't like science teaching completely focused on solving little problems. You know, you have a ball rolling down a slope at this speed, uh, how long does it go? And uh, come on, this is so boring. Tedious. What is interesting? <laughs> what is interesting is understanding what is the structure we're using for understanding the world. What is a force? What does it mean to have an energy? Uh, why there are conservation laws? Uh, why thinks uh, object follows mathematical laws? Uh, and this is fascinating because this is also powerful. This is what gave us the capacity of of doing things. We learn how to build airplanes and. Bridges, not by doing little exercise, by asking deep questions. How do things move? Why do things move? What is energy? And when you read when you read scientific texts from history, you know, it's so striking the colour of the language that those early scientists use, full of flair and poetics. And I, I was struck by your words, the culture of today that keeps science and poetry so far apart is essentially foolish. You know, in Australia, the national government here has recently doubled the cost for some arts degrees and decrease the cost of science-based degrees. Uh-huh. The premise being, uh-huh. you know, they want to create an incentive for students to steer away from the arts and towards the sciences. And <laughs> I, w- I wonder how you see that that kind of bifurcation, that polarisation. I've created classes which are science classes open to non-science students uh, and vice versa. So I have been working all my life to try to take down the barrier between the different educations. Of course, then each of us then at some point does something which he's good at or she's good at doing, right? I mean, some of us do radio, some of us do physics, some of us (laughs) do music, some of us do art, some of us do engineering, some do teaching and some drive the car. So it's, it's, it's fine then to, to specialize on something. But I think the more we can uh, keep an open mind and, uh, as much as possible on the multi-face facet aspect of culture, the, the best is for everything. And then also 
as citizens, we want to, to I don't want to be deprived to, by art, literature, science, and music altogether. So I think education, including university education, should be education of, of, of humans in the larger sense. Yes, it's almost a joke today, though, isn't it? Oh, I'm so bad at maths. Oh, I was rubbish at science at school. And I often think we're failing the intellectual curiosity of children in the classroom. When we hear the adults, they become say that. The key is to have passion. When the teacher is passionate about something, the children follow. Because uh, I think uh, we communicate ideas not really rationally, but through the emotions and through our enthusiasm. It has always been like that. I mean, if you read Plato, this is, it says this over and over again. The beginning of philosophy is an emotional thing. It's a relation between a teacher and, and, and a pupil. It's a love relation first. It's a love of person and of ideas. You get enamored of ideas. And that's how, that's how you learn. I wasn't a particularly good student because I was rebellious. I didn't want to do what they told me to do. But constantly, I got enamored. It makes you the best student, potentially, <laughs> well, <laughs> or the best student of life. Right. There's a, in a sense, this is a, I mean, when I teach, these are the students I prefer, of course. Those who, who question the teacher. Resist. Who, who, yeah, who complain and say, <laughs> no, I don't believe that. <laughs> You're wrong. And, uh, but that get engaged and that get passionate and they, say, and they see the beauty in what is being taught. School is a strange thing because so many children become bored at school, right? And they become bored when what is presented to them, uh, it's an unbelievable wealth of marvels, of wonders uh, in literature, in mathematics, in history, in philosophy. Wow, why not having them get excited about that? That's, I think, what should be the purpose of education. Yes, it's interesting you were talking there about emotion and rationality and the, the, the polarisation between the arts and the sciences often mirrors how we separate out the emotional and the rational as, op as opposites. And, you know, this attitude, of course, shapes the culture of boardrooms and political discourse and workplaces. Thou shalt not show emotion. And yet I've always been struck, Carlo, by the work of neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, who wrote, amongst other things, The Feeling of What Happens. I've got it on the bookshelf behind me here. And he looks at the role of emotion in cognition, in intelligence, that the reality is there is an intelligence to emotion. We need emotion to be intelligent. Do you, do you see yes. a relationship between the two? Oh, yeah, enormously. And uh, Damasio was, uh, has broken ice in that direction, has been mm. enormously important. I think that uh, the separation is fake for two reasons. Emotions are real, are not illusions. They are the actual way we function. And more importantly, emotions are what drive us. If we had no emotions, we, we would have no motives, no, no, nothing that pushes us. Mm. Rationality doesn't motivate. Rationality is a way to uh, you know, think back and uh, avoid mistakes. Rationality is a help, obviously, and it's a, it's a tool. It's a fantastic tool that humankind has uh, developed over and over, much above the other, other speeches. Uh, so we can have very complex argument and, and thoughts. But this is just a tool over and above what we really are, which is a being which are driven by, by what drives us, which is what we call emotions, which are not just bad emotions, they're good emotions, they're a simple emotion, complex emotion. I mean, an emotion is, you know, when I'm hungry and I need to go there and get bread, when I'm thirsty and I need the water, but an emotion is also the love of justice, the love of, 
humankind, the desire to help one another and the love of beauty and curiosity, every scientist knows very well. I mean, mathematicians were supposed to be, you know, the pinnacle of rationality. If you, if you haven't seen a mathematician at work, he's just burning with emotions. He's just burning desperate because of this theory and doesn't come in and he's sweating and he's... Uh, <laughs> uh, skin becomes red, uh, and then he's desperate because this is, uh, something doesn't work, and then he's so happy because it works. He really wants there. These are all emotions. Yeah. So it's pure emotion working using a tool, which is the brain saying, oh, careful, this is not working. This is this is this is uh, this is this, this is that. So I think we have to to integrate our understanding ourselves, not seeing um, uh, emotions as something marginal, but as something foundational in, in what we are. Carlo Rovelli, there, there is though a, a wariness of the subjective in, in science, of, of expressing opinion, a viewpoint. You know, scientists are often only comfortable talking publicly about their, you know, what their data tells them. You, on the other hand, you reveal your idealism in your writing, arguments about equity, about passivism, about power, about politics, about humanism. <laughs> You're right out there. You're, and you fly your atheism up the flagpole in your newspaper columns in a very Catholic Italy. You clearly have found your courage to express the subjective. Has its hazards. First of all, we Italians uh, have a it's easier for us to express emotions and and subjectivity. We tend to we tend to say what you think. I mean, of course, there is expertise, and people are, are reliable when they talk about things that they know. But then, if a scientist talks only about black holes, and uh, and an artist talk, talks all only about. Uh, it's music, sorry, painting, uh, um, and historians talks only about what happened uh, 300 years ago, and the politician talks only about elections. Uh, uh, that's not what makes us become more intelligent and understanding the world. I think what, what makes up more intelligent understanding the world is when we read one another, we, we talk to one another, and we exchange ideas, and we, um, we go out of our, our terrain. Of course, with, with uh, humility, I I don't pretend to be teaching other people <laughs> what they know and I don't know. Of course, I mean, I, I know my limits. I come from a rebellious youth, a radical youth. I was politically involved uh, in, in a radical way when it was in, in my youth. And then somehow... And we should just explain that you were immersed in the movement of 1977 that sprung out of Italy, Got you got involved in... Free radio, the free radio movement via Bologna's Radio Alice. I mean, this was a spontaneous movement of free thinking as much as it was of free love, wasn't it? And you were arrested. I was arrested, yes. I was beaten by police. I was arrested. <laughs> I had a Which, in a sense, it failed completely because the, the world, uh, you know, without uh, money, without boundaries, without armies, without religion, without family, <laughs> that it was in various ways uh, dreamed at that time, didn't realize at all. The world preferred to go in a completely different direction. So because of that, I, I, I went into a science life a little bit as a way to, to not be engaged in, uh, fully engaged in the society that I disliked. Many scientists have this path, like many artists, right? Arts and science are ways sometimes, if you, if you don't like the system, as we would say when we were kids. <laughs> if you don't like society and the common values, uh, you just uh, 
you go into an intellectual or artistic world. For me, it was a little bit like that, which means also that I, I was for a long time feeling that my worldview was uh, quite out of phase with most of the people around me. And then I started to do science, which was very fundamental science. I mean, I started to do quantum gravity and uh, uh, so uh, fundamental quantum mechanics, general relativity, space-time, all that stuff, pretty separated from what people usually care about. And then a sort of uh, isolation. Only late in life, I started uh, writing uh, books for the large public or reading papers. So this is not something that I, I did for the first part of my um, of my life. And to my surprise, it was an enormous surprise, uh, a lot of people reacted very positively. So a lot of people uh, appreciated the, the perspective that I was, uh, I was uh, and this has motivated me to continue because uh, it, it has been great, uh, a strange uh, sense finally, you know, after 50 to get in, in, in phase with, with my, uh, my brothers and sister. And, uh, so I, felt, I suddenly felt much less um, lonely. I thought that nobody would appreciate what I thought. And, uh, and I, I was wrong. So I, I think that the thoughts, the ideas uh, don't belong to us, I believe. We are just, uh, you know, um, we are vessels through which, through which mm. ideas go around. Portals. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And, uh, and ideas, uh, the beauty of living together is exactly that we're all a little bit diverse, di different. And uh, we continuously learn from one another. We exchange perspective ideas. Uh, uh, and so we are, we are nodes in that. We are portals in that. Yes, and, and for you, fundamentally, quantum theory, quantum gravity, so you're working with the action of gravity at the quantum level, so at the scale of a millionth of a billionth, let me see, of a billionth <laughs> of a billionth of a millimetre, so 10 to the minus 33, you know, That's things right. get very weird down there. Um, as you put it, time and space cease to be what they are. But fundamentally, quantum theory for you is is kind of about relationships, isn't it? Theoretical physics changes not just the way we view it, atoms. It changes the, the general view we think about the world. Quantum mechanics is an extraordinary theory that works fantastically well. We use it in, in, in everyday life uh, for, for computers, uh, for lasers, uh, uh, for medical applications, uh, for atomic bombs, for nuclear facilities, for all sorts of things. And... Uh, it's in spite of a hundred years of applications, it's, what it's really telling us about the world is still astonishing, completely astonishing. Because uh, that's, I think, is the core of the story. It forces us to think, uh, not to think anymore of the world in terms of things, objects with, uh, with the properties, but uh, only objects related to other objects. This is what quantum mechanics teaches us. So there are relations before being entities. And this is a wide message because uh, we, we know that we understand the world better in terms of relations than objects, but realizing that this is true generically, even at the level of ins um, 
elementary constituents of the world. At, fun, at the level of uh, fundamental particles, it is about relationships. At the level of fundamental particles, And then exactly. at every other level, it is about relationships. In nature, it is about relationships. I think that's, a, that's the main message of, of, of quantum mechanics. I mean, we understand uh, many things in, in, in relational terms. A mother is a mother because there is, a, there is the, the children. A planet is a planet because it rotates around the star. A prey in biology is a prey because there's a predator. So things are defined in terms of how they, they relate to something else. Objects, uh, that thing is red because it interacts with, uh, with a receptor in my, in my eye that make it red. It's being red is not a property of the thing. It's a property of the relation between the thing and my eye. Other animals don't see it red. And this goes all the way down to the elementary particle. An electron is, it is what it is as a property. It has only in the sense that it has a property relative to something else. And I think this helps us to understand even ourselves, right? If we think about ourselves as a, a, a node in a relation with other people and with ideas and with situations and with institutions, I think, rather than thinking about entities. The entity me is always being an extremely confusing thing. What is this? If I take away my, my body, I take away my thinking, my memory, what remains is me. No, what remains is not me. What remains is nothing. I, I am the narration, the relations. I am the what my friends look when they see at me, and so on. Yes, it's uh, your your new book, which I've only just got a copy of this morning from you, um, Helgoland, uh, coming out uh, just in coming weeks in translated edition, tells the rollicking history of the kid scientists who landed quantum theory in the world. And, and they were kids when you look back in some way, wunderkinds. And uh, I've often wondered what on earth was it about their state of mind that enabled them to, I mean, kind of almost fantasise a kind of whole other story about reality. You know, they, well, <laughs> I, yeah. I know you've written yeah, about the experience of having LSD <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you were younger and how that was utterly formative for you. Steve Jobs talked about yeah. the same, but what were those kids on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's astonishing what they have done in the age at which, uh, which they, they, they have done. One of, the, one of the spectacular things about quantum mechanics is, 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 was done by, by, by young men in their 20s, German, British, Austrian, who uh, somehow were schooled, were full of philosophy in their head. They were schooled in thinking wide. They were fascinated by Einstein. Einstein had uh, done uh, relativity just a few years before, and, and Einstein had been so radical in his thinking. And these young kids were thinking, well, maybe we want to be equally radical to solve the unsolved uh, problems. Mm -hmm. And young um, Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg, goes to this island in the Northern Sea, it's a small, teeny island uh, without vegetation, uh, cold wind of the north, uh, uh, high rocks over the, uh, the, the, the ocean, and spend some time there in solitude, thinking about all that and uh, doing calculations. And he, he had to go there because he was suffering from um, allergy. And the advantage of being in an island without vegetation is that there's no pollen, so, so you don't suffer from allergy. 
but I think he went there because he wanted to be alone and <laughs> and and do full immersion in a problem. And he was uh, uh, he was doing calculation. At some point, we have his uh, his diary, his uh, his memories. At some point, things started working. He has he find this key, this mathematical key, that suddenly gives all the right results. Uh, in fact, in a particular, in an extraordinarily simple manner, it's just a mathematical trick. And he's so excited about that. And he tells the moment in which, uh, in the middle of the night, I mean, one day things start working and then he gets all excited and he does calculation and calculation, but then he's too excited. We talk about emotions before, it's the emotion of discovery. So he makes one mistake after the other, he makes too many mistakes. So he has to redo 20 times the same calculation. And finally, he's deep in the night and everything comes out right. And it's three o'clock in the night and he realized that he has found something major. And in fact, it is something major. This is the beginning of quantum theory, the, 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 the new science of the new century. So he goes out in the night and climbs one of these high rocks and waits for the sunrise over the, over the ocean. Um, just, you know, thinking, uh, oh my God, I've seen something completely new. And of course, today that scientist would have posted it on Facebook and tweeted it and, you know. <laughs> I didn't think about that, how right you are. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to speak to you, um, Carlo. Thank you so much for joining me, Carlo Ravelli. Thank you, Natasha. That was very, very nice. Thank you very much for having me. Quantum physicist and best-selling author Carlo Ravelli. His new books are There Are Places in the World Where Rules Are Less Important than kindness and out this month is Helgoland both out through Penguin tweet me at Natasha Mitchell tweet Carlo at Carlo Ravelli share the podcast love tell your friends leave us a review on Apple or Google or wherever we'd love that it really helps others find us uh, back next week bye you've been listening to an ABC podcast discover more great ABC podcasts live radio and exclusives on the ABC listen app